remembered the Lord's Supper uh, by commemorating the communion feast or uh, gathering together the broken body of Jesus Christ and the blood that was shed in the New Testament, New Covenant in the blood of Christ Jesus, the Old Covenant and the blood of bulls and goats that never dealt with the issue or the core of sin. It simply dealt with the consequences of sin. But the blood of Jesus dealt with the root cause, kind of the difference between using uh, aspirin and an antibiotic. Aspirin just deals with the pain, but the source is still there. But uh, there's other types of medication that go right to the heart of the problem. And I'm so thankful for the blood of Jesus that not only dealt with the consequences, but went down to the core and dealt with the root of our sin. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Today we celebrate the resurrection, the newness of life that we have in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. And now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. The word quicken to most of you only refers to financial programs or loans. But the word quicken in the uh, ancient English of King James era means to change or transform. The spirit of him that raised up Christ from the dead, if he dwells in you, he will change you, change your bodies by by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Amen. Thank God for the resurrection. Thank God for the power of the resurrection that's made available to us. And while Jesus came through and made all things new, he has power to make all things new in your life. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the demonstration of your power and your spirit that we felt in this house today. And we thank you, Jesus, for every member that's seeking to serve you, Lord God. For every visitor and guest that's come, Lord Jesus, to give honor to you on this Easter day. We pray, Lord God, let your word come forth with clarity. Let it come forth with conviction. Let it come forth with hope and faith. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And if you agree, everybody said amen. Amen. Let it be in Jesus' name. God bless you. You may be seated. I think it's extremely appropriate that uh, every year Easter time happens with the advent or the coming of spring. And while we here in Southern California can't really relate, those of us that have lived here for a while or your whole lives, can't really relate to the awesomeness and the joy of spring. If you've spent any time living in a climate where there are four distinct seasons, you know and understand the excitement, the exhilaration, the beauty, the anticipation of spring. Because not only have you been dealing with cold, miserable weather, having to shovel snow and make sure that the 
salt from the road doesn't corrode and eat away the metal in your automobile and you've had to deal with slippery roads wearing coats and gloves and uh, uh, hats to cover your ears so they don't freeze off for months and months the sky's been dark and dreary snow overcast you look out and the trees that once were covered with beautiful leaves flourishing the ground that was green with grass the beautiful birds that were chirping there are none of those associated sounds of spring and the trees are stark and naked without any leaves against the dark sky but then all of a sudden it starts to warm up a little bit all of a sudden you hear the trickling sound of the snow melting all of a sudden you begin to hear the birds chirping and you look out on the trees and you see the little buds that are representative of spring and it feels so good. Things are new again. Things are fresh. We haven't been cursed eternally with winter. We haven't been cursed eternally with barrenness and cold. But here comes the warmth. Here comes the, the greenness of the grass. Here comes shining through again the trees and the beauty. And we hear again the birds returning from their reprieve in the south to uh, repopulate here in our area. And the beauty of spring just brings this sense of freshness and newness and hope again. And everything that was dead is now coming back to life again. And there's something beautiful about the idea of regeneration and newness and freshness for everybody that's been through a rough day and you wake up and there's a new day and the sun's shining afresh again and anybody that's been through a situation in your life and all of a sudden you get a rebirth or a renewal you know the beauty of springtime and the message of Easter is quintessentially at its core about going through a process of death so there can be newness of life so there can be fresh and renewed growth so the hopelessness of the past can be restored with the hope of now so that the the dullness and uh, and the staleness of your situation can be replaced with freshness and newness. So I'm thankful for springtime and I'm thankful for the message of Jesus Christ and the message of Easter where Jesus said that which was dead can be made alive and that which seemed impossible can be turned around and that which was destroyed can be restored and that which was beaten can be brought back to life again. And I found in my life the truth that even though the enemy has had his way and even though the enemy has sowed corruption into my life there is hope that I don't have to live with the guilt forever that I don't have to live with the product of the corruption in my life forever but because Jesus came forth from that tomb after a bloody Friday on a beautiful Sunday I can live today and rejoice the restoration through the cross made manifest through a rolled away stone in the tomb of Jesus Christ, all things made new. Now, if you know much about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, you understand that the cross of Jesus Christ was foreshadowed uh, repeatedly. In fact, the Old Testament is replete with foreshadowings of the message of Jesus dying on the cross. Foreshadowing is a literary 
tool used to drop hints about what is coming along in the story, the main plot of the story. And in fact, authors use what's called backwriting. They write their story, but then they want to provide clues or set a tone or set a mood for what's coming. And so they reinsert into the writing certain elements of foreshadowing about what's happening in the main event of the story. And this is true of the Holy Bible, the greatest bestseller ever written, is that there are elements of foreshadowing all through. But the interesting thing is this is not a product of backwriting, but this was something written thousands of years prior to the main event being written, amen, in the Gospels of Jesus Christ. Uh, and those authors anointed by the Holy Spirit uh, uh, were were directed by God to insert elements of foreshadowing from every lamb that was slain as a, as a symbol of, uh, 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 of uh, taking the place uh, uh, of the one that should have died, whether it's the ram caught in the thicket, uh, the bullet caught in the thicket that uh, was sacrificed in the place of Isaac as a substitute, uh, or, or whether it's the sacrificial lambs uh, in the Passover, or the lambs that were slain throughout the years in the bloody tabernacle plan. All of this was foreshadowing the fact that Jesus one day was going to die. The perfect death, the perfect lamb, the flawless, spotless lamb slain for the sins, not just of his generation and not just of those that offered him up, but the sins of the world. That means all of the world, both past and present, that which already was and that which was to come. Jesus completed the task on the cross. He took your sins, even though they hadn't been committed yet. He took your sin to him, with him to the cross. Died for our sins. And as you look at the foreshadowing of all the lambs that were offered the Passover 2,000 years ago that was celebrated in Jerusalem and where Jesus was offered as the spotless lamb and then three days later on the 17th day of the first month, the Jewish calendar, Easter Sunday, Jesus came out of the tomb. But I see all this foreshadowing of the crucifixion. And I wanted to look back and see, is the resurrection foreshadowed as well? And uh, there's one particular story in the Word of God that's very interesting that foreshadows the salvation that's available to us. The salvation that you and I can take advantage of through Jesus Christ. And that is... The story of Noah's Ark. I told the people in our top ten meeting before church, uh, I think I'm going to preach about Noah's Ark today. And they laughed at me because they thought I was teasing. But I'm going to speak for a moment about Noah's Ark. Because Noah's Ark represented God's means of salvation from his judgment that was well-deserved. The Bible said God had created the earth. And once he had created the earth and created his crowning achievement, his beloved humanity, we know that uh, through the failure of Eve in the garden and then Adam following her in her disobedience, that sin passed upon the entire human family. And then we see with Cain and Abel that there is a righteous seed and an unrighteous seed. Cain killed his brother because his sacrifice was rejected when he said, I'm going to worship God my own way. And God says, I will not accept that. I will only accept you worshiping me and coming before me with an understanding that blood must be shed for your sins. 
When Cain rejected that, he became a murderer. The Bible said a mark was put upon him and there was an unrighteous seed that was released on the earth. Now the Bible says during the times of Noah, very clearly it says, men's hearts were set continually to do evil. And God's beautiful creation had been corrupted by sin. Corrupted by the voice of the enemy that manipulated and misrepresented God's worth. Now here's the interesting thing is that when the serpent spoke to Eve in the garden, he didn't come with his own words, but he came with a twisting of God's words. He came with a mixing of his words with the word of God. And whatever he did then, he's still doing it today. He never asks someone to absolutely reject the word of God, although people eventually will. But what he does is say, let me mix my philosophy and my theory in with the word of God and you can come up with something hybrid that has a little bit of God but a little bit of secular perspective and a little bit of philosophy and a little bit of humanism mixed together with it hath God said does it really mean that does it really matter amen and so because of this mixing it brought about a corruption the Bible also speaks in Genesis chapter 6 where it tells the story of the flood the story of the flood starts with a very interesting kind of unclear story about a mixing of the what are called the sons of God and the daughters of men. And the seed or the offspring of this hybrid mixing produces, what does it produce? It produces something which the Hebrew word is Nephilim, which is giants. And uh, now there are uh, uh, varying theological opinions on this. Some people believe that when it's referring to the sons of God and the daughters of men, it's talking about a mixing of the seed of Cain with the righteous seed of Abel until all people had been influenced by the seed of Cain, which was the uh, corruption of the mark. Everybody still with me? Is, it, are we really, is this really Easter? Yeah, we're going somewhere with this. Other people believe that the sons of God were the fallen angels, those who had accompanied Satan in his rebellion. And up until the flood, there had not been established this current unbreakable wall or barrier between the evil spirit realm and humanity in terms of interaction, reproduction, and that somehow Satan's strategy was, I will use these fallen beings to corrupt the seed of man so that through this corruption there would be no one who would fulfill God's purpose and love God and have relationship with God and so that seed of these fallen angels begin to corrupt the various families and the various families begin to be corrupted by the Nephilim. These are two opinions, but one thing we do know is that the flood has something to do with this mingling that took place in Genesis chapter 6 and that there was a corruption of sin or evil that had come upon the family of man until there was evil only in the hearts of men continually. Let me read the verse for you right here. It says uh, uh, in Genesis 6, 12 and God looked upon the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth and so we see a picture of the world like it is today 
the majority of human beings, even though they may have good hearts and even though there's a part of them that desires to please God because it's God-breathed, it has been corrupted by the message, by the, uh, the intent, and uh, by the spirit of this world until even though there may be a part of you that desires to do right, your heart is set to do evil continually. Amen? That's a picture of the world that we live in today. It can't help itself. Its genealogy and its lineage has been corrupted by sin. I'm not talking about a literal corruption genealogically, but I'm talking about a spiritual corruption mentally and uh, uh, in our philosophy, in our theories of life. We can't help it. We think we're doing good and we think we're right, but there is a corruption that has come upon all of mankind. The Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be today. And we see ourselves living in a world where even good people are accepting things that good people used to reject. Even good people are embracing things. I say good people, people with good hearts and mentalities and approach to life, but they begin to embrace and accept and allow things that at a certain point in time, the corruption of humanity hadn't reached the point where good people would accept or allow or embrace. And it even has crept into Christianity. Yeah. Until, quote unquote, Christians walk around the beach in a bikini. Oh, yeah. Until Christians allow and embrace and accept things that the Bible speaks and teaches directly against. What is it? It's not that they're not good people. It's not that they don't have a good heart. But it's because there's been a mingling and a mixing of the philosophy and the theory and the values and the morals of this world with the morals of the Word of God. And there's a problem. There's a, there's a problem. There needs to be a solution because this corruption can destroy your family. Amen. And you don't even recognize what's happening. You can't even see what's taking place. Amen. Amen. Until good is called bad. Bad is called good. The Bible says that's a sign of the end time. You know one of the worst things you can call someone today? Intolerant. That's like the worst slam of somebody in our social perspective. If you call someone intolerant, you've just called them a Neanderthal. You've just called them stupid. You've called them clueless. You've called them out of touch with reality because they are intolerant. The Bible tells us that we are to be tolerant. That means to respect other people's right rights to live like they want to. But the Bible never told us that we had to accept their lifestyle as legitimate and appropriate and scriptural and uh, something for us to embrace. Amen? Amen? Amen. So evil is called good and good is called evil. It's a type of the world during the time of Noah. It was in a position where it only could be destroyed by God because this corruption has so intermingled and woven itself into the fiber of humanity that there's no way of pulling it apart. But there was a man, the Bible says, who was perfect in his generations, who walked with God, who was righteous. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. People say, as Bible scholars believe, that Noah's family had not been intermingled with the corrupt seed of the Nephilim. There were no Nephilim in his background, whatever Nephilim was. There was no corruption from the world around him. And he was a man that walked with God. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so God said... I'm going to destroy. I'm going to send judgment 
But Noah was saved and his family. God gave him instructions to build the ark. Build the ark out of gopher wood. And then I want you to pitch it without and within. With pitch. You know, there's another Hebrew word that they should have used if they wanted to say pitch. But the word that they used to describe the pitch within and without is the same word cover that is used to describe atonement a little bit later when they talk about what happened when the lambs were offered up. So there is atonement or symbolism of atonement in the ark because guess what? The ark is about salvation. The ark is about deliverance. The ark is about saving God's people from his judgment, number one. But I hadn't thought about this until the other day. But number two, God was saving his people from the corruption that would eventually have come into the family of Noah as well to where God would have been forced to completely destroy the world because of the corruption of this unrighteous seed of the Nephilim. Amen. This is deep, isn't it? But let me share with you right now. The Word of God lets us know that God saved humanity through Noah and his wife and his three sons uncontaminated by the theory and the philosophy and the genetics of the world that they were living in. They were saved in the ark. So we say, thank God for the ark. But you know what? The ark would have done Noah no good if there weren't a door into the ark. Amen? Amen. You've got to have a door because you've got to get in. And eventually there's a coming out. But without a door, he could have built a beautiful ark and no one would have been saved. There could have been a means but no access. Amen. Amen. But I'm so glad that the ark represents what Jesus Christ did to save us from the corruption of this world and from the judgment that was coming from God. The ark is a type of New Testament salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'm so glad that it's not just a, 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 a salvation device, but that there is a door through which we can go to get into the ark. And Jesus said, I am the door. God's judgment is coming, and His judgment is universal. His judgment is upon the entirety of mankind. The only ones that will be saved, amen, are those that go through the door of salvation. Amen. Just like the only ones that were saved at the judgment of the Passover were those that came through the door that was spotted with blood. The door spotted with blood. Amen. What a type of Jesus Christ. If you want to get into a place of safety for the judgment that is to come, then you've got to go through the door. If you want your family to be saved from the corruption that prevails in this world, you've got to come through Jesus Christ. The only way, the only way that you can be saved from the judgment that is to come is through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21 says, which sometimes were disobedient. 1 Peter 3, 20 which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. The waters of baptism save you through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice in that chapter, it says in chapter in verse 20, it says eight souls were saved by water. Now here's the deal. I'm going to be straightforward with you. I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for years. I've been a student of the Bible for years. And the, the, the uh, uh, phraseology there, saved by water. The preposition by always bothered me because I didn't understand it. By water? They were saved from the water, not by the water. Anybody ever thought about that before? Baptism is a figure. Uh, or Noah's salvation in the ark was a figure of, of, uh, 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 of New Testament salvation, water baptism. How many are glad you've been buried in Jesus' name? Yeah. He was saved by water. And I said, no, he was saved by the ark from the water. No, the Bible says he was saved by the water. And it hit me. It hit me yesterday while I was praying and thinking about this. His family was saved by the water from the corruption that would have destroyed his family. Had the, had the water not purged the earth. And so in a corporate sense, the earth was baptized so that there could be newness of life. And, a, and Noah, in an individual sense, experienced the purging of this baptism so that his family would not have to deal with the threat of the corruption of the Nephilim in the future. So his family was saved by the water. But it only happened through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you today that your family, that your life, that you and those that you love can be saved from the corruption of this world. Can be saved from the corruption that will destroy you. Can be saved from the corruption that will take you far from God and put you in a frame of mind where you want nothing to do with your salvation. That the power of the blood of Jesus applied in your life through the cross of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Can save you. You were saved by the water. Noah's family was saved by the water. Because if the water hadn't come when it did, eventually his family and every family on the earth would be destroyed. But the water came so that the corruption could be destroyed. So the seed of the Nephilim could be wiped out. So that Noah and his family could go forth and live in newness of life. I want to tell you today that there is power in the gospel message. That the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the blood shed on the cross, uh, hallelujah, saves you. Not just from the judgment of God, but from the corruption that was going to destroy you. Oh God. That's why I sing, I'm so glad that I've been buried. Some of you got a witness in your heart today that if I hadn't been buried, I might be a drug addict today. If I hadn't been buried, I might be dead today. If I hadn't been buried, I might be raising reprobate kids today. If I hadn't been buried in the blood of the Lamb, my life and my future and my destiny could have been beat to pieces. But I'm so glad that I've been buried in the name of the Lord. I'm so glad that I've been saved by water, that there's been corruption, that's, that His power and authority has been destroyed choked out in my life oh my god hallelujah hallelujah i've been saved by water so the good news is we hear about the flood it sounds like bad news 
But if we look at it, stepping back a couple steps, we realize that the flood is good news. Because if there's no flood, corruption will eventually spread throughout the entire human family. And they're completely wiped out. The good news is the flood saved Noah's family from corruption. And ultimately from the judgment that was to come. And when we take first look at the gospel message, it doesn't look like good news. Because somebody had to die. And not just a normal death. Not just a death of old age. Not just laying in a bed, in a hospital bed, gasping for final breaths with friends and family, speaking words of encouragement around him. But a brutal, humiliating death. People jeering and laughing, stripped naked and beaten to the point of the, the, the utmost of human endurance. And there in front of all the people who were jeering and laughing and mocking and smacking and spitting and punching. There Jesus died on the cross. It looks like bad news. It looks like bad news. But the gospel is good news. Let me tell you what the best kind of news you can receive is. Good news in the paper isn't just random. But good news in the newspaper usually comes as a resolution to bad news. It's not good news that the economy is picking up until you've been through a bad economy. Amen. It's not good news that the war is over in Europe until you went through a lot of suffering in the war of Europe. Good news is usually as a resolution to bad news. And the same is true of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And the message of Jesus Christ is such that sin is prevailing in this world. The heathens rage. The mentality of this world is prevailing. The Bible said wide is the way that leadeth to destruction. Many are on the pathway to destruction. But narrow is the way. And straight or difficult is the way that leadeth to eternal life. And few there be that find it. But I'm telling you there is a gate that leads to eternal life. It is a gate spread with the blood of Jesus. That gate is Christ Himself. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So the gospel is good news. The good news is we had bad news prevailing. We had broken God's law, been corrupted by sin so much that we didn't even recognize That we were disrespecting God's purity. We had no concern for what God thought. We were overwhelmed with the spirit of Cain. That said, I'll do it my way. I'll do it my way. Nobody, no book, no religion, no background, no philosophy, no theory, no theology is going to tell me what to do. Because I'm my own man. I'm independent. The theory of man, that's sin. That's what sin is. Some people think sin is lying, cheating, stealing, messing around, drinking it up, partying, all of that. No, that's just the product of sin. Sin is the attitude that says, I'm boss, and I'm going to do what I want to, and I'm going to live how I want to, and I'm going to conduct myself how I want to. Amen? That's the problem, and that's in all of us. Come on, somebody. And it mixes with the corruption of this world. And we look at those around us and we measure ourselves amongst ourselves and say, I'm better than him. He killed somebody. I must be better than her. She's mean to her kids. And, and I must be better than this person because they can't control their finances or their, they, they owe money to this person. I must be better to that person when in reality we don't recognize all of us are corrupted by sin. 
is bad news. And the judgment is the wages of sin is death. And it didn't matter. Those men didn't ask to be corrupted by the seed of Nephilim, but the corruption was there. And light had no fellowship with darkness. And the only way they could be saved is God had to take care of it for them. You can't save yourself by being a good person, by being nice and paying your taxes and cleaning your house and mowing your lawn and taking good care of your kids and not beating up on people. You can't save yourself only by the blood and only by the work of Jesus Christ. That's the only pathway to the ark. The only pathway. The only way to redemption. Is through Jesus Christ. I want to share something interesting with you. Genesis chapter 8 and verse 4. Where we are in this passage is Noah had preached his message to an unbelieving world. And out of the thousands of people in civilization, there were only a few that chose to listen. Members of his family who came in through the only door into the only ark, the only way of salvation. And there God fulfilled his promise and destroyed the entire world with the floodwaters, except for the undefiled family of Noah and the animals that had been brought onto the ark with him to propagate the seed into the next generation. And so in Genesis chapter 8, The floods had come. The fountains of the deep had broken forth. All of humanity, corrupted humanity, was destroyed. There was no seed of Nephilim left. And if Nephilim were, in fact, progenity of evil spirits, fallen angels, then there was a barrier created to where we don't have to worry about that anymore. Everybody say, thank you, Jesus. Jesus. There was a barrier created. The earth was purged. The earth is covered with water. Just real quick, did anybody ever notice that the earth is going to be baptized twice? In the days of Noah, it was baptized in water. First Peter says the next baptism is a baptism of fire. So if the earth is baptized in water and fire, we have to be baptized in water and fire. John said, here's Jesus. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. Yeah, the purging element. And so here we are in Genesis chapter 8. The earth is covered with water. And the ark, the means of redemption that is busy bouncing about in the meantime, saving Noah from not only the judgment, but from the corruption of this world. While the corruption was being cleansed, the corruption was being wiped out and snuffed out for his future. Here the ark is saving him from the corruption. And the waters begin to abate. And the Bible happens to say that it was specifically. You can read it for yourself if you don't believe me. Genesis 8, 4. It says, and the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. Have you ever wondered what, like, these things in Scripture... How they keep their calendar? I mean, they're just marking the days. And why? I mean, no, Moses is writing this hundreds of years, thousands of years after this event, and he writes the specific date. What is the significance of the seventh month and the seventeenth day? Stay with me just for a second, because this is really interesting. 
Did you know that when God delivered the Hebrew people out of Egypt, the Bible says it was in the seventh month. And this was to be the month of the Passover, but he changed their calendar. And the Hebrew calendar now becomes the seventh month becomes the first month. And the day of the Passover is always on the first month, which in the old calendar would have been the seventh month. And the tenth day was when the lamb was slain. On the, I'm sorry, the fourteenth day. The tenth day was the day that the lamb was set aside. The fourteenth day was the day that the lamb was slain. Fourteenth day of the first month or fourteenth day of what would have been the seventh month. Can any of you do a little bit of math here and figure out what the significance of this is? That the ark is in the process of saving God's people from the corruption and it comes to rest. Meaning no more questions. No more problems. No more issues with the past because now all things are new. There's going to spring forth fresh buds and the earth is going to bring forth new life and you boys are going to have kids unaffected by this evil Nephilim spirit. And it's new life in a new world on the 17th day of the seventh month, which just so happens most scholars believe to be the very day that Jesus walked out of the tomb. Three days after the Passover. Newness of life. I want to share with you the message of the resurrection is that all the things that used to bother you and all the guilt that you used to deal with and all the things that you used to struggle with and all the corruption that made a mess of your life and your theories and your philosophy and your ideas to the point where you're like, I don't know how I can live for God. I don't know how I can be victorious. I don't know how I can be an overcomer because I'm struggling with this and this and this and I got this bad habit and I deal with this issue and I hurt this person and these people are out to get me and all these things happened in my life. The Bible lets me me know that there is something about this day called Easter in our vernacular, formerly called three days after the Passover, but on the 17th day of the seventh month when the ark came to rest, saying that the process is done, that the corruption is cleansed, that you don't have to worry about the old stuff anymore. The Bible says it this way, if any man be in Christ, if any man be in the ark, he is a new creature. Old things are past away and behold all things are become new I want to share with you today the message of the resurrection is not just something to celebrate called Jesus won the battle it's something to celebrate because it means you have new life you can come forth from a purging you can come forth from a cleansing and where your future looked dark and it looked like your future was corrupted and it looked like your family was destined for disaster Jesus says I'm stepping in i'm transforming i'm changing i'm making all things new oh come on somebody help me praise him right now hallelujah somebody help me praise him right now hallelujah i'm excited about the new birth say that's old news it may be for you but for somebody it's good news the gospel you can only have new life through the gospel you don't get new life through reforming yourself
Come on, you've tried that before. I'm going to quit cheating. I'm going to quit cheating on my taxes. I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to try to quit drinking cold turkey. I'm going to quit being abusive and mean. I'm going to change my attitude. I'm turning over a new leaf. I'm making a New Year's resolution. You may, that may help you for a while, but that doesn't deal with the corruption issue. Because it's still in you. It's got to be dealt with. That's why the Bible says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. I like that word, remission. Because I think of it in terms of cancer. Cancer spreading. Cancer is going to destroy you. Cancer is going through the body. But then the doctor says, we've got good news. The cancer has gone into remission. That means it's not moving forward any, any longer. That means it's starting to retract. That means the tumor's withering up. That means the influence of that cancer is moving in reverse. And I want to tell you that there is power through the blood of Jesus to cause your sin to go into remission. To cause it to go into a position where it's not influencing. It's not destroying. It's not wrecking havoc in your family, in your body, in your life any longer. The good news The bad news is you can try to be good all day long. Try to be a good person. Try to obey the commandments. That's what they did in the Old Testament. God gave them commandments. He said, if you want to not be a sinner and not let this corruption come into your life, guess what you do? Here's the Ten Commandments. Here's the moral law. Here's the ceremonial law. Here's the civil law. You obey all these commandments, and I'll bless you. I'll be with you. But the Bible says it didn't work. Did you know that? The Bible says that? It didn't work. The Bible says in Hebrews, it says that, uh, uh, it says, let me see here. Let me see, where's that verse right there? Jeremiah 31, 33 says, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I'll put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. In Hebrews, I believe it's chapter 8, or chapter 10 says, by the which we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest used to stand ministering and offering the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Wherefore the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them in those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins their iniquities will I remember no more Hebrews chapter 8 look at it yourself this is repeating Hebrews chapter 8 I don't have the verse here in front of me but it said the old covenant was a covenant of the laws and people were to obey them but it didn't work so God says I'm going to change it I'm making a new covenant I'm going to write my law in your hearts so that you begin to desire to do right I'll put my spirit within you my spirit within you within you and so the resurrection, as Jesus came out of the tomb, it was about all things new. It was about a pattern for us that while we are under the threat of the corruption of sin, every person, the Bible says all have sinned. Uh -huh. All have sinned. The Bible says a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. You put a tiny bit of yeast that deals with the whole deal. And sin prevails. Anybody notice, know what I'm talking about? Starts little and grows big. Start cheating little and start cheating. Then you later you know you're cheating big. Start being abusive little and later it becomes big. Sin prevails. 
Start with a character issue in one area of your life and it bleeds over to another area of your life. It's sin. All of us are dealing with it. But thank God that we don't have to deal with it because Jesus said, I'll deal with it. And I need you to trust in me and go through the door, which is Jesus Christ. You can't live right unless you give your life to him. You can't live right through your own power unless you say, Jesus, I'm taking my cross and I'm following you. I'm taking up my cross daily and I'm following you. Jesus, I'm going to live for you every day when I wake up every morning. I'm following after you. And here's the key. The key is the Holy Spirit. John said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. But he also said, I'm not worried to kneel down and tie up his shoes. Because I'm baptizing you with water unto repentance. But he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost not too many days from now. John prophesied that Jesus' purpose was to take away sins and to baptize with the Holy Ghost. I read in your hearing the very first verse today, the very first verse that we read before we began our sermon. Let's read it together. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 says, I'm sorry, Romans 8, You're not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken, change, transform your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. That sin that's in your body, that sin that is in your flesh will be transformed. The Bible says it this way. He would put his law in your heart. He would take your stony heart out of you and put in you a heart of flesh. The heart that says, I'm going to do it my way. The heart that says, nobody's telling me nothing to do. And all of a sudden you surrender to God. He says, I'm going to give, do a heart transplant here. I'm taking out this stony heart. I'm putting in a heart of flesh that I've written my commandments on. So as you go forward, rather than trying to force yourself to, uh, to submit to a group of laws that you can read on a wall, there's going to be something something inside of you compelling you to serve God and live for Him and walk with Him and, and seek to satisfy His expectations for your life. But it's only through, you guys listening to me right now, it's only through the Holy Spirit, which is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, I heard a story, read a story, it's very interesting. A uh, true story about a little boy named Philip who... Uh, was uh, Down syndrome, and uh, he was in a classroom, fourth grade cl classroom, a Sunday school class, other eight and nine-year-olds in the class, and uh, the teacher gave them an assignment to, uh, around Easter time and gave each of the children in the class a little plastic egg like this, and uh, told them, I think they were actually bigger, like the... Uh, Anybody remember those little eggs you get when you buy legs, pantyhose? I, n I never bought any, but <laughs> I remember playing with the eggs in my m mom's closet. <laughs> and uh, so she, she gave them all one of these eggs and sent them out into the churchyard because maybe they lived in the Midwest instead of California where there's no such thing as a churchyard. It's called a parking lot. <laughs> there's no property and uh, oh by the way we got approved fully approved for our project this week 
We'll talk more about that next week. I'm sorry to spoil it, but I'm just kind of excited about that. Really excited. And so they were sent to go out to collect signs of new life in the spirit of Easter and spring. Collect signs of newness, new life. And so the kids were collecting blades of grass and little flowers in a bud and putting it into the eggs and little different ideas, little pieces of nature. Maybe someone even put an ant in there or a moth. But they brought all their eggs in, and then the teacher began to open them up one by one. Open it up. Oh, look, there's a flower. This represents new new life. It was dead, and now it's alive again. Oh, here, here's a piece of grass. It was covered by snow. It was all brown. But look, a new bud of grass. Oh, and they opened them up one by one, and then they came to one egg, and this is the egg that's represented in. She opened it up, and, and, the, and the egg was, there was nothing in it. And uh, she said, oh, I don't know whose this was, uh, and, and you know how kids are kind of mean sometimes. And one of the kids yelled out, come on, you know what the assignment was? We've got to get something that's a sign of life. And then little Philip, the little boy, said, raised his hand, said, that's my egg. And, and you know how kids can be mean when the kids say, Philip, you always get it wrong. You never get the assignment right. You always mess it up. Philip said, no, 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 no. It's empty because the tomb is empty. And this, this is why we have new life. This is why all things are new. <laughs> Come on, somebody. This is why all things are new. As the story goes, it was a few months later, maybe a year or two later, when uh, complications of Philip's condition took him to the door of death, and he walked through that door and passed away. And at his funeral, all the kids that were in the class that day brought an empty egg and set it up on the casket. Say, we have this hope. We have this hope. We have a hope that the world doesn't have. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem letting us know that death is not the end. Because of our salvation, we are redeemed not only from the corruption of this world, but eternal damnation. We have hope of eternal life. Through Je- Did you know that you have hope of eternal life because of what Jesus did on the cross? And I want to encourage somebody today. You know the message of Jesus. You know the Word of God. But I'm encouraging someone today. If you've never experienced the baptism of the Holy Ghost and you're trying to live for God, you're going to be frustrated. Because you're just trying to force your flesh that's corrupted to do things it's not inclined to do. But if the Spirit of Him that raised Christ from the dead dwell in you, He will change your mortal body. Are you getting the point now? By His Spirit that dwelleth within you. And that thing that tugged you toward the flesh now will put you in an appetite for the things of God. That's why people that used to like to go to, uh, uh, to the bars all the time, once they're made new by the Spirit of God, all of a sudden they want to go to the house of the Lord. They didn't have no time for church, but now they want to be in the presence of the Lord. It wasn't because they just had a change of mind. They had a change of mind, but their body was transformed by the Holy Spirit. Cause of an empty tomb. In just a moment, I'm going to open this altar up in just a second, and I'm going to encourage young, old moms, dads, 
visitors, friends, long-term members alike to come down and talk to the Lord. We're going to give thanks to Him. But I want to talk specifically to someone who you may consider yourself a Christian. You have respect for the things of God and respect for the Word of God. But if I were to ask you today, if I were to sit down with you individually and I were to say, are you following Jesus Christ? Are you following Him? Are you filled with His Spirit and walking in the Spirit following Jesus? There's somebody in this house today who would be honest enough to say, Pastor Brown, I'm respectful of the Word of God. I'm respectful for of this church. I'm respectful of Jesus Christ. I'm respectful of the message of the Bible. But I've got to tell you, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not following Jesus. And I'm going to implore you. I'm going to stand here and say, listen to me. Because your family, your future, your life is in the balance of whether you follow Jesus Christ. Whether you experience the new birth and walk in the Spirit. I've got a great message, a message of hope for you. But it doesn't work if you keep doing your own thing and walk in your own direction. It only works when you say, the cross is before me and the world's behind me. The things that used to attract and pull and direct my life don't anymore because I'm following after Jesus. I'm following after Christ. And I'm going to tell you, still we'll struggle with temptation from time to time. That old flesh will start to get the upper hand from time to time. I'm not telling you that once the Holy Spirit comes in, that you never have temptation to lie again or to cheat again or to do things that you shouldn't do again. But there is power. And you know where your power comes from henceforth. It's i got to get in touch with Jesus. i got to come under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I can't do this on my own. I can't fight this battle through my willpower. It's only through the Holy Spirit. And I'm challenging you today because we're talking about something that will enrich and enhance and bless your life. But more importantly than that, it's a promise of eternal life. Eternal. Did you hear me? Eternal life. And in closing, I, uh, I read a story. I heard it as being true. And some of you may have heard it before. A story about a gentleman, a young man who became estranged from his parents uh, through a series of events. Hard feelings, harsh words spoken. And the relationship disintegrated and there was no communication. And um, over the process of time, because of a conflict in the family, you know, uh, the mother passed away, and uh, the boy thought it only fitting that he would come to his mother's funeral. He showed up at his mother's funeral. Here his dad was. They spoke. And even in that tragic situation, rather than extending mercy to each other, more harsh words were exchanged, and it was done. Then something happened in the life of this boy's father. The dad had a change of heart through the power of the gospel message. His life was changed. He began to follow after Jesus and the things he used to hate, now he loves. And the things he used to love, now he despises. He's a new creature in Christ Jesus. And he recognizes the sin that he has uh, inflicted on his son in their relationship and says, I've got to get this relationship restored. And so he made a telephone call to the son and said, I, I need to talk to you. I there's some things that I need to clear the air with you about. He was wanting to apologize and make things right. 
And the son, through his bitterness and unforgiveness that had festered over the years, had no time to speak to his dad and hung up on him. And so, with sadness, the father accepted that the forgiveness that he extended had been rejected, but he'd done everything that he could. And then as time passed, the father passed away. And at his funeral, uh, the son showed up again. Uh, the, the story is that the, the father was a wealthy man. And uh, afterwards, at the uh, giving of the will, there were sums of money given to different people, nephews, nieces, other close family members. And the son was there wondering if perhaps he would get some piece of this inheritance. And uh, when it came his turn, he said, your father wanted to leave you this. And uh, he was an old Bible. Can I borrow your Bible, sister? It was an old Bible. And uh, he looked at it and said, this is it? This is all? Are you serious? Are you serious? <laughs> he walked out of there more bitter than ever. And all his father left him was an old Bible. Well, as the years passed, the young man was now older. And at a certain point in his life, circumstances brought him to the foot of the cross. He decided to give his life to Jesus. He heard a sermon similar to the one you're hearing right now and decided, I don't want to live for myself the rest of my life. I don't want to carry around this unforgiveness, this bitterness, these bad feelings. I want a fresh start. I'm tired of this. I want to tell somebody today, you've been carrying a lot of junk that you don't need to carry any longer. Today can be the day that you can lay it down and let the Holy Ghost purge all those bad feelings and that hurt and that bitterness out of you. Come on now. The comforter, the healer. And uh, so as he left the church that day, a changed heart and a changed mind, he went back. And I don't know if it was the next day or days later. But he said, you know what? Dad left me something that was really valuable now that I recognize the power of salvation I wonder if I could find that old Bible. I wonder if I could find that old copy of the Scripture Dad gave me. And so he goes searching through the attic, through the drawers, wherever, and finds the dusty volume, wipes the dust off the Bible, just kind of holds it preciously. And Thanks, Dad. And then he opened up the first page and through the second page, and there was something taped. In, in the pages there. And uh, it was a, a, a check on his estate for $1 million that uh, had been in the Bible the entire time. I don't know why the dad, the father did that. But there in, in the book was the physical aspect of the inheritance. And I want to tell somebody today that new life in Jesus Christ has a value that can't be quantified. Not just eternal life, but blessings and favor and pleasures in this life to come. Life to come. This life that we're living in right now, in the future, and to come. Why don't we stand to our feet right now?